Chad Belding back at you again with another episode that we are very excited for of This Life Ain't For Everybody and what I've been talking to you guys about the last month or so. The 2019 North American Whitetail Championships is getting closer and closer as the 2019 hunting season approaches us. And as hunters, we all know that this spring we got spring snow goose. You might have a turkey hunt, maybe wild hogs, and then we got the summer and it turns into some fishing, some boating, some jet skiing, some family time, and those dog days of summer as we try to just get through it and just work try to keep our minds clear to get to September, October, whenever some of us get to go blue wing till hunting early Canada goose season. Some guys migrate north to Canada. And deer hunters, they're looking forward to the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Bone Collector and Wicked Outfitters in Kansas. Clint and Steve, are, uh, they got a heck of an event going on here. $300 enters you in for a chance to qualify and compete for $50,000 cash money. Again, 14 regions across America and Canada, and that $300 entry fee gets you a package that's already valued at well over that with a tumbler by our boys at Gator Coolers peep sights, accessories for your bow, and a tacticam. So again, $300 gets you entered to win and qualify for a chance at $50,000. So check them out at nawtc.com, nawtcchamp on Instagram, the North American Whitetail Championships 2019, 14 regions across America and Canada, brought to you again by our friends down in Booger Bottom, Georgia, Michael Waddell and the Bone Collector crew. Today's guest has been here before, and we got such huge response because of his knowledge, his insight, and especially his passion for everything ducks, everything birds, everything waterfowl. He's a waterfowl biologist. He's drinking Dr. Pepper. If you cannot hear that, he's going to open probably three to four of them during this because he gets on a little bit of a sugar kick, and you can't stop this man. Chris Nikolai, welcome back. Hey, Chad. Yeah, glad to be back. What have you been up to since we talked last? Uh, it's getting ready for field season. I think we wrapped up before, I think it was still duck season. I can't remember, but yeah, I had a good youth hunt, been out, uh, catching birds, getting proposals written, uh, yeah, chasing turkeys with the kids. It's been about it. Making decoys, stuffing some birds. It's been busy. So even though it's not quote unquote bird season, you're still finding a way to keep birds at the top of the priority. Always. Every year of your life. Oh yeah. So tell me about the turkey hunt. Your daughter is how old again? 12. Just turned 12 opening day. And you made a comment the other day that she's only has one large bird to kill in North America being the crane. Yep. So what does that mean she's harvested already? She's gotten all seven legal geese, which the seventh one is nearly impossible for everybody just because of a drawing. And yeah, I got her swan this year and now she's got a turkey. And last thing left is a crane and we have no problem with cranes up in Canada and now she's the right age where she uh, gets promoted from decoy setter to trigger puller now. So should be no problem to get her that crane in a few months. Do you enjoy harvesting cranes? Oh, yeah. Why? They're just different. You know, we talked about it last time. I mean, yeah, I just, I'm always just looking for something different. You know, the just different species, something different. You know, they come in different. You call at them different. Yeah, they taste different. Yeah, they're a hoot. And do you, 
as far as when you say they taste different, are you hear some people call them the ribeye of the sky? Are they better than a speck when a speck's you know in the rice and he's and he's feeding right? Is, can a, does a crane compete with a speck? Oh yeah, they definitely compete. I think the biggest thing is just a different meat texture. To me, they're more of uh, you know the shards of the meat, the muscle tissue, and there's just bigger and thicker. It's not the fine tissue like a like a waterfowl is. So yeah, they're different. I mean, they're, Definitely comparable. I wouldn't say they're better or worse, but they're right up there with the best tasting birds for sure. When you drive through Nebraska on I-80, you come to, is it Kearney? Yeah, Kearney, that whole Platte River stretch they there. They call the, the, the Sandhill Crane capital of the world, right? Yep. What kind of shape is our crane population in? Excellent. Yeah, they just did the survey couple weeks ago i saw the numbers for those i think they were over seven hundred and fifty thousand just along the plat there you know so for that mid-continent crane population they're doing awesome you know it's amazing a bird that doesn't breed till it's four years old raises one kid a year can still increase when you know we're clobbering them and how long has that been going on where we've had open season on cranes do you know boy i'd have to guess at least the 70s, if not earlier. Really? Mm-hmm. Has it always been sought after by waterfowl hunters? No, I think it's it's one of those things, too, you know, where a lot of guys are, everyone wants to try to get all the different species now. I think there's a lot more people traveling than they used to, and it's one of those species that you can't get in a whole lot of places. You know, there's a couple, what, maybe three hunts in the Mississippi Flyway, none in the Atlantic everywhere in the central except for nebraska and very limited in the pacific flyway you know just the eastern states and alaska and are you making your own crane decoys as well i tried i did that once back in fairbanks when i lived up there and we made a whole bunch out of blue foam glued it together carved it made a mess and i think we killed two we had more buffalo come into our crane decoys those hunts than we did cranes yeah they didn't work all that well really a buffalo and a crane decoy is a big one you know it's one i've thought back and forth but you know it's a trade-off how much do you want to spend versus buying the best ones you can get you know so when you're when you're a crane when you're setting up for cranes you're pretty much the approach is the same you want the wind they're going to land into the wind like a duck does yeah i'd say they're even more more focused on the wind than any of the waterfowl just because you know their stall speed so low you know they got those big fat wings they don't have the long skinny wings like ducks and geese do so when you're saying that they but they are going to set into the wind they just need more wind to do it right i think they'll just if there's more wind they will have to come right into the wind they won't do the crosswind stuff at all no matter how desperate they want to get in they just can't how important is a hide in a crane hunt are they really are they leery are they looking for the boogeyman i mean weary are they are they looking for a coyote no i think they're the same as a goose really yeah i think they're just the same you know sometimes you can get away with almost nothing and other times you know you can use panel blinds out in the middle of a field and they still don't care really you know with the advent of you know everyone using panel blinds the last five six years i still just it took me forever to even try one and it's just like how do they come into these and they work amazing what about vocalization are you using a canada goose call and twirling your tongue or is there an actual crane call or do you even use it do you have to do you have to make noise no i mean you used to be able to buy crane calls that to me 
looked and sounded pretty much like a New Year's Eve party horn with the curly paper thing ripped off the end. It was pretty bad. And then we actually started playing with white front calls rather than Canada calls. And yeah, rolling your tongue, like you said, and all that. And just in the last two years, the best green call I've ever heard of came out. And sure enough, I bought one of those, and that's a total game changer. Is it is it a is it an actual dedicated crane call? Oh yeah. And who makes it? Uh, it's coming out of those deception decoy guys out of Oklahoma. I think someone else is making them, but they were selling them, but now they discontinued them, which I can't believe. I figured they'd be selling them by the caseloads. Really? There's that many crane hunters. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, harvest isn't enormous on them, um, but. You know, it's, it's hard to judge. You know, you see all these new products coming out. And it's like, okay, how many are they really selling? That's for them to know, you know. But, yeah, definitely I'd say crane hunting's changed a lot just in the last five years due to that one company. So do you chase them down here or do you no. just, just Canada? Just Canada. Canada's, you know, just one of those special places with a lot of really friendly people and good access and things like that. Um yeah, kind of my one time of the year I chase them, we get our fill, and leave them alone after that. Yeah, it's always been interesting to me because you see, I see them a lot. Nothing's ever really tickled my fancy to go and do it, or I've eaten it, but I've never really got it. As far as the harvest part of it, is it any, like anything today? You know, I've heard people in the last two days, three days say, I'm never going to shoot a turkey with anything but a 410 with TSS nines. And a lot of turkeys are dying with 410s and 20 gauges now because of the, you know, the evolution of ammo, TSS mainly. And, you know, you can use TSS in a lot of waterfowl hunts now. Is, is crane hunting something to where your daughter's going to be able to shoot a, a 20 gauge and have no problem with the harvest? Or are they a bird that you want to have a 12 gauge with? She'll kill it with her 410. Really? She's no problem. killed everything with her 410. Yeah, no problem. So they're not, they're not, I like a big Canada goose. I would think that you would want a little bit more firepower for a grader. No, she's killed him. Really? I mean, she's killed. Like I said, every goose species in North America, you know, including an emperor now. And, um, yeah, probably three quarters of the ducks. Yeah. I don't really see any reason for her to ever switch and she's dead on. I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot of guys that are, doing a lot of waterfowl hunting with 28 gauges guys that are really good shots are using 410s i've been on a 410 duck hunt and was terrible i've had a lot of success with a 28 gauge it just seems like a 410 is so small to bring down a big bird and yeah. I, I i don't are they is she using tss in the waterfowl hunts no um i mean i i, I felt the same way as everybody does you know oh, there's no way there's not enough pellets there's the knockdown power um, the knockdown power is the one that totally changed my view of it. But yeah, I mean, all of a sudden I had these kids that were, you know, they're 12 and nine now, and they were out with me on their first duck hunts, you know, by six months old, they're banding ducks and they're six weeks old. And, um, you know, they wanted to go and it's like, okay. So we started farting around with, with a 410, you know, it's just standard lead loads for upland birds. And then, you know, some of our mutual friends out in Fallon, have been playing around with, you know, hand loads, which there's a lot of people doing, you know, and some of the companies have really stepped up in the last year or two getting, you know, more premium shot stuffed in these smaller shells. And, uh, you know, we started playing with like steel eights, you know, and in a three inch 
410 load, you can get about, I'd say 250 pellets of steel eights in a 410, you know, so you look at something the size of your pinky and you've got more pellets, you know, open up a three inch 20 gauge loaded with steel twos. And I bet you there's more pellets in this 410 coming out, but you're looking at bigger pellets that have more air resistance, more meat drag, you know, when they hit the meat. So I've looked at it. I got into it totally because of my kids. It's the only reason I always, you know, was shooting three inch twos for geese and stuff like that. And, you know, we started playing around with this stuff from these guys that have been saying it for years and no one was listening to them. And yeah, I just equate it now to shooting needles rather than throwing bowling balls at birds. So you yourself are shooting a 410? Yeah, occasionally I'll give it a try, but it's still hard for me to give up the guns I've owned for a long time, you know? So what's your go-to gun? If you're going specifically for divers, if it's side-by-side, it's a side-by-side 12 gauge. Yep. Or 20. I got 20s. I got four tens, 20s, 12s. So when you're already at a disadvantage in waterfowl hunting with three shots, as opposed to an upland hunt, why would you disadvantage or why would you handicap yourself even more with one less shot? You can only shoot eight birds, 10, 10 ducks in the best, in the most liberal parts of the continent. You know, you don't need it to be over too quick. But why? So you're saying you hit every bird you shoot out, Chris? I wouldn't say that, but I hit a lot of them. Wow. I miss. What do you equate that to? What do you equate shooting success with an experienced waterfowl hunter? Is it the instincts to be able to pull up? Because shooting sporting clays and shooting wild game is totally different in my opinion. What do you equate success in the field with when you just said that, that I, you know, I hit most of them. Is it because you can just shoulder that gun and boom, just like you should with a, a, you know, when you're throwing a football or whatever, you don't aim, you just pick up, use your instincts and and let it go. Handgun, bow and arrow, whatever. Um, If you sit there and study the shot too long, you start shaking, you start thinking too much, start playing head games. What do you equate it with? Is it getting them close because you're such a good caller and your decoys are so real? Is every shot right in your face and easy? Or what what does a good waterfowl hunter have in his, you know, what does he have to say about his shooting skills? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, and I think you nailed it in the beginning right there. Um, It's gun fit. If your gun doesn't fit, you're screwed. You know, most guys just buy a gun. You know, oh, they told me to buy this and you go and buy it and start shooting it. And, you know, did you make any adjustments? Did you look around at different models or whatever? And, you know, I was a sucker for it for years. You know, my first gun was a 870 Express way back when and shot it forever. I made that thing work. And then all of a sudden I was getting tired of guns that jammed. And I'm like, OK, I want a break open gun. I want to you know, have my gun be able to freeze an inch thick of ice around it. And it's still going to shoot when I've been sitting there eight hours for this shot I need to take. And, uh, yeah, I was in the market for a double barrel gun and I picked up this one and held it up and I'd never felt anything like it. It was pointing exactly where I put it without moving my head. And I think that's huge. Yeah. Gun fit. I'd be willing to bet eats up 90% of any shooting difficulties you have. And then the rest of it might be the, the instincts of just being able to pick it up and get on that bird. Yeah. I think it's, you know, being able to keep both your eyes open to get that depth. You know, is that a cackler or is that a big giant Canada goose? You know, how far is it when you're just looking at one eye, you know, you can't really tell. And then is it going away? Is it coming at you? Is it stalling? Is it increasing? You know, being able to use both eyes to see what that bird's doing, I'd say is the next biggest one. And then third is, 
shooting consistent shells. Yeah, being the kind of guy that, you know, I've, I've been there when in my younger days and I still see a lot of guys, oh, I got my duck shells in, oh, there's geese coming and they're pumping their gun empty and loading it with goose shells. It's like, no, you know, all of a sudden your ballistics are completely different for this new shell. While we're on this topic of shooting, I want to ask you this question. I got an email three weeks ago from a very well-known person in your world. I'm not going to say his name on this podcast, but I'll tell you after. But he stated that he watches our show, The Foul Life, on the Outdoor Channel, and that he's disgusted by it. And I really took this to heart because um, he said that he watched an episode I believe it was two episodes, but it was kind of the same area. It was the same area we were in. So it was like a continuation. And he said that I have too many hunters in the field at once, too many guns going off at the same time at a flock of ducks or geese. Nobody knows what birds they hit. And it's unethical to the birds to have that much firepower going off at a flock of ducks at the same time. So my first reaction was, whoa, wait a minute, who, who are you to tell me how to hunt? But then I started to break down the email before I responded. And I said, okay, he made a statement that I hunt with one other guy and one other guy only, and we take turns. And I said, I, I respect that. Maybe my life's a little different to where I'm, I might be entertaining. I might have a bigger group out. I might, it, you go out and the landowner wants you to take his kid and his cousin, and then you got your guests with you a group of mallards comes in and I say, get them. And we do sit up and we kill them. I don't know if it's the right thing to do. I'm asking you, like if you sat me down and you're my counselor and you said, Chad, look, I've been doing this a long time. I've been on hunts with 10 guys. I've been on hunts by myself. i you know, whatever. Is it wrong to have eight guns in a blind and call the shot on a group of ducks? Um, as long as you're t getting the birds and not going over your limit and putting them in pile, individual pilots and you know what your daily limit is and what you've killed or what you're claiming at least with a blind limit, what, how does ethics play into that? And am I being ignorant to have that kind of hunt with that much fun and high-fiving? And I know it's to each their own and don't try to tell somebody how to hunt. But the more I think about it, it's almost like I don't get to do that every day. It's very rare that I get the ducks in tight enough to call the shot. I'm not making an excuse like maybe I should never even think about doing it, but it's not like we're just out there killing thousands and thousands of birds again, but we could. If we hunted with that many guys and the ducks did it right every day, we have a chance of shooting a lot of birds with that much firepower, birds getting caught in crossfire. One might catch one in the wing and be crippled as she, he or she flies off. The excitement, you might get a bunch of hens mixed in with drakes and kill the hens. If you're legal, if you're not shooting over your limit of hens or your daily limit of drakes and hens mixed, your daily bag limit, what is your opinion on that? I'd say go for it. You know, if you can hide that many people and still pull it off, yeah, why not? You know, especially for those situations you've talked about. Sometimes that hunting party grows. I've had that happen as well. And, you know, you don't want to be the Debbie Downer and you're kind of into it. So, yeah, let's give it a try. Yeah. As long as you're following all the regulations it's ethics, you know, and everybody's got different ethics with everything. And we don't typically, you know, managers don't manage for ethics. You know, that, that starts splitting some hairs pretty big there. And, you know, it's, it'd be really hard. So if you're on a hunt with me like that, let's say you join me on a hunt and we figure we're going to be in Kansas. We're going to be on the edge of, we're going to be on the edge of some, um, on a winter wheat 
and there's a, a bunch of lessers going in there and the daily limits eight birds or six birds a day in kansas eight in oklahoma and we're in a panel blind and you're like man you know there's six other hunters here you brought one so now we got eight guns and we're out there you're not going to sit look at me and go oh hey man look this is too much let's take turns because I've done that too, Chris, where you're like, let's take turns. And then the first flock does it. And then nothing else happens. And the guys that didn't shoot on the first flock are like sitting there going, or you're like, Hey, some guys wait in the truck. And if they, if we get some guys shot out, we can bring some other guys in, you know, as long as we're doing it illegally, but it just never seems to work out that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty rare that you can fill everybody, but yeah, I mean, and every day goes different. I mean, it could be that first volley comes in, everyone's amped. And yeah, we're all going to lay into him, but one guy's pouring his coffee and he doesn't get to shoot, you know, so there's always going to be those little caveats. And, you know, by the end of a successful hunt, you are kind of taking turns. It's like, well, I've already got my limit. You know, you, how about you shoot that last bird we need, you know, so there's a chance at taking turns. So yeah, no, I mean, that stuff, like you said, you know, as long as you're following the bag limits and keeping track of your own birds, have fun, have a big group. Yeah, when I when I got the email, I was just kind of like, he took he took a lot, and it's a long email, and he used words like disgusted, and I'm like, man, I'm not, I'm 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 trying to promote the sport the right way. I understand the group is big, but it's not like we're staying out there all day until we get our limits. I don't I I, I don't call the shot very often. I just it was just weird to see the the response that he had out of a bunch of passionate waterfowl hunters trying to do things right and call right and decoy right and get them right for harvestable shots and not sky bust and it was just I just wanted to ask your opinion like should I start thinking the other way you know as I'm in my 40s now of being like well maybe waterfowl hunting is just me and one other guy well I've always loved waterfowl hunting for the exact opposite that you don't have to be a turkey hunter or a quiet deer hunter all by yourself right you're like it's camaraderie yeah so and we all go you know maybe when you are old you might be you know hunting with you and your old dog one day you know yeah everybody we all go through those different stages of hunting there's different points in our careers sometimes you just run into a bunch of buddies at a gas station in oklahoma that you didn't know that they were there and it's like let's get together yeah you know things go on a whim so you yourself personally with everything you deal with in the waterfowl world and i know you made the comment that you're a manager you're a biologist you're not supposed to worry about that's somebody else's job to manage the, the ethics. ethics and and but as far as the maintaining the culture of this lifestyle and the and the character of it i didn't i don't want somebody like you looking at it like hey man i'm watching the foul life and this is brutal you got way too many guns out there i'm just wondering if there's a right way to be a waterfowl hunter i've heard the p places in like alabama and georgia where they surround a pond have you heard of this where the, right. these guys are growing the flooded corn down there they let all the ducks light and then they jump them from all blinds that surround the pond in a circle in a circle and then they wait until they're at a certain angle and then i'm like First of all, safety, but they're like, no, we're, we never, ever shoot across the pond. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but dude, you got a bunch of new people in there, the excitement level, but then they just sit there and let them all come back in. I'm like, first of all, that sounds weird that they're, you know, they're just coming, they're all letting them light into this pond. And I'm like, well, that's the way they hunt down there. They yeah. don't, they don't. Well, it's like Illinois, it's illegal to shoot a duck on the water. You know, that's an ethics thing. That's not a biological one at all. And, you know, but. I'll shoot a duck on the water, especially if it's a really pretty one that I've been waiting for. You know, it's going to die, and it's totally legal. But a lot of people won't shoot one sitting on the water, you know. Okay, let me ask you. That's another good point that you make. I've heard that. 
a duck lives on the water. He's not to be killed where he lives. Well, mm. we're killing them as they try. We're tricking them as they come back into their home. Would you shoot a turkey off the roost if you saw how long his beard was? Yeah. I Is mean, it's the same questions. You know, do you shoot a running deer or do you shoot a standing deer? Yeah. You know, it's all, it's all what's legal and what's going on. You know, turkey shooting on a roost, that's a whole different caveat there. Um, yeah. You know, it's all what phase of hunting are you into, do you know? I just, I, the way that I've always looked at it is all you're going to get out of that, unless you're starving to death and you've got to have that turkey breast, which turkey meat is just okay to me. I had turkey, turkey stew for lunch just now. <laughs> I can't, I'm not a big wild turkey. I love turkey meat, but I have to cook it if it's wild turkey meat. I, I'm just, I'm not saying I wouldn't eat yours, but some people don't know how to co even cook wild turkey meat and it turns out terrible, but I just can't imagine standing under a roost tree and sh shooting straight up at a turkey just to kill a turkey and get a picture. I just think that if people do something the way that my eyes see it, and I'm not saying that it's the right way, but to see ducks do it the right way, I don't know if I would ever jump shoot again. I'm not saying that taking your daughter and your nephew out to get a duck and get some skills going isn't the right thing, but I, th I think that if you're an adult and you have the ability to do duck hunting right turkey hunting right the right way flush a pheasant the right way whatever it is that would all I, I can't sit there and say that i would call somebody out on it so you shouldn't be jump shooting it's legal it's legal do it but it's not the same as sky busting i do have an issue with people sky busting which we touched on before i think that's unethical i don't think that you need to shoot a bird at 60 70 yards when you could be patient hone your skills get them in a little bit tighter in your opinion nikolai is it anybody's business the way you hunt should you be able to voice your opinion on saying don't sky bust oh yeah oh yeah no I, you if if there's the free spirit to harvest an animal the way you want i think there's also the free spirit of someone else to vocalize if you're right or wrong you know and i think you know going back into this whole ethics thing i would have to say well, definition of ethics that I've heard before is what would you do if no one else saw what you were doing? You know, how would you behave? And at the same time, I'd say ethics are one of those things that's inherited. You don't start out as a brand new hunter without a mentor with very many ethics. But, you know, if you come into a hunting family or a hunting group of friends, you're introduced to ethics before you even go out hunting. You know, so it's the newbie without a mentor you know, and there's a lot of discussions about this too. It's, you know, how do you develop those ethics when you don't have a mentor? You know, because like I said, that definition is basically how would you behave if there is no one watching you? Yeah, it makes total sense. So is there, is there, if you don't come into the sport with a mentor and ethics, part of it. Or skill it, sets. I think it goes down to skill sets. You don't know how to set decoys. Boy, me and my uncle, we learned how to duck hunt. I don't think we had a decoy till the fourth year. You know, we're like, hey, you know, we should try some decoys sometime. All we did was jump shoot for four years, you know, figuring it out, hitting a series of ponds every weekend and hope we get something. Okay. So you bring up another great point. Is jump shooting unethical like you look at sky busting as being unethical? No. I don't either. No, jump shooting and sky blasting, I'd have a definition of that as well. I mean, I know some guys that consistently get up on groups of geese i'm with them i'm not even reaching for my gun and they crush them you know those guys yeah if it was 
me or somebody else, oh, heck yeah, sky blasting. But you get these other guys that, you know, have it dialed in and it's impressive. You know, so, so in your we all have different skill sets. In your opinion of a skill set, and is it, is it can, translates into ethics, why do they have to kill a bird that high? Is it because they need the food? Or is it because they're showing off that they got good marksmanship? Or can't they go to a sporting clays course and do that on target and not take a chance of crippling a bird? Yeah. Oh. But, I mean, you think of, like I'd say of any year for snow geese, it would be this spring. You know, if you're going to go somewhere, and I know a lot of guys that have completely stopped trying to decoy snow geese and just go to pass shoots. You know, you get a year like this year where, what was it, a quarter of 1% were juveniles in the mid-continent white geese. You know, where, where are you going to get more birds? Are you going to set up 1,500 decoys and all your other equipment or more decoys and hopefully, you know, get some? Or do you just get into a pass shoot and you could probably get a lot? We shot more geese, more white geese in Saskatchewan this year, pass shooting than decoy hunting. So as far as the pass shooting goes, are you looking at it as filling a bag for meat when you're in Canada? As opposed to the spring, you're are you providing a duty to the federal government and the and to the birds to protect the the population of this bird and doing your job as far as the saving the tundra saving the tundra yeah. goes? Yeah, I don't buy the saving the tundra story. And anymore. you're a biologist, so you're not buying it. So yeah. it's all it's all a meat hunt for me. It's so for geese. So is it the wrong message being sent when I'm seeing these videos? There's been several videos this year. Of course, social media, you see this where there's, there's several hunts of over 500, 600 birds, and none of them are decoy hunts. Mm -hmm. They're all jumping, ditch hunting, ditch running. They're all, um, I, one of them I saw was uh, three flocks coming light on a farm pond, and they just swack. I mean, it's amazing how many birds stay on the water. If you want that many birds, you know, go for it. The opportunities there, the data shows that the population isn't feeling these increased bag limits. And it's, you know, comes down to how many do you need? Uh, we talked last time, and I'll stop in when I'm in Canada. We'll switch to a different species. You know, there's always something. We're not shooting that many birds, but I do have, you know, like I don't need any more. Okay, you know? so what about the rules in some states in the spring that you don't even need to keep the birds? I mean, there's... No, certain... you have to keep all migratory game birds. See, I've seen in some states to where like zoos will come and get them to feed to the animals. Oh, you could do that. Yep, well, this is what we talked about last time with edible portion laws. Yeah, you have to retrieve everything out of the field, even in the spring hunts. So without it there being evidence that this is affecting the overall population of the birds, is this spring season, this conservation season that's going on right now, which you just said yourself that this was not going to be the year you would, I wouldn't want to do it because they're not really, there's not enough juvies to decoy them. There's going to be a lot of adult birds. It's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And I've heard from a lot of different outfitters and hunters that have booked trips and gone on trips that we drove nine hours from Georgia to Arkansas and killed six geese in four days. And I'm like, yeah, it wasn't the spring to become a snow goose hunter by any means, but mm -hmm. with the way it is and the chance, the opportunity to kill that many birds, I don't know what the number of hunters is. I, I don't, I couldn't even guess how many spring snow goose hunters there it's are. It's declined. It's declined. Yeah. I mean, in the, what, 20 years now it's been since it's been implemented. Yeah. It rose, it peaked and it's declined. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a tough, tough hunt to do. Even in the best of years, it's not a slam dunk. Do you see that this no limit deal per state stays in effect 
for the rest of our lifetime at least? I think so. Um, you know, and there's, I was thinking here while we were talking too, just how much things have changed, you know, in 20 years. So let's go back to 1999. And let's even go back to 1994. Let's go back 25 years. We were still with very low goose limits. We had non-liberal duck seasons. You know, that's 25 years ago. That's almost a career to some people that have seen nothing but liberal seasons. And, you know, kind of going back to the email you got there is, you know, you get some of the folks that have been around a long time and it's a whole different scene out there right now. You know, there's so many people that, haven't seen restrictive regulations or lower goose limits. And then you get people that cross, you know, either the, the big snow goose limits really get a lot of people to think different. You know, we're ducks. We've always been kind of restrictive on and safe. And then, you know, we took basically all the barn doors off of snow goose regulations and it's two different games. You know, one you have to stop and one you don't. But, I, I, I'm going to ask this question again, and you answered it last time, but I want, I want to have a very clear understanding a few months later. If the overall goal is to save the tundra by having these spring seasons in where you can go and kill an unlimited amount of snow geese, why do you have a limit in the fall of snows? Well, that's a good question. Um, hunting seasons... We've always have a limit. So I think, you know, these discussions have been had, you know, can we just go to unlimited? Can we go to 100? Can we go to 200? But then, you know, folks start looking at what people actually shoot, you know, and you build some curve of, you know, how many people kill every day. And, you know, most people probably get one, two or three snow geese in the fall. And very few get up in those teens and those higher numbers up against those limits in the mid-continent. And yeah, I think, you know, we just treat those historical fall, winter hunting seasons different than these new conservation orders in the spring. So I think that's just the main difference there is you have the hunting season versus that conservation order, which is a whole different legal can of worms. Is, is, it, is it pretty normal for specs to migrate in the reverse migration back north with snow geese? Or do they stay by, are they You're all by the... spring migration? Yeah, are, or are they all by themselves 100% by that point? No, I mean, they mix in. I mean, white fronts and snows breed together in a lot of places. They migrate together. They winter together. You know, small Canadas as well. You know, some big Canadas actually molt where the snow geese and white fronts nest. So, you know, they see each other. They just... Sometimes you see them together, sometimes you don't. Yeah, they're not mortal enemies from each other, scared of each other at all. I'm just wondering about the crossfire and if that many geese are being, if there's a no limit law, like how many birds of, uh, that aren't of the legal species in the spring depredation are falling? Are falling. Yeah, I've never seen information on that. You know, because there's cases and cases of shells being shot oh, on yeah. these hunts. Yeah, it's just I'm just wondering, like, how many? If I haven't been on enough snow goose hunts in the spring to even know if it's if it occurs or if if you see a bunch of specks mixed in or a goose that you're not. Can you kill eagle heads in the spring? Blues and eagle heads and oh, rossies. Yeah. All every subspecies of the snow goose is legal, right? Yep. But if a lesser comes in and mixes in, that's a no-no. Pintails, I've exactly. seen sprigs. So you, you got to make, so there's still some identification going on. Oh, yeah. But 
it seems to me like those birds come overhead at 30, 40 yards. You and there's five or there's 20 layers of them starting at 20 yards. It just seems like there's a chance for oh, yeah. mistakes to be made. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, I would have to imagine that's been discussed. I mean, you look at like early teal seasons and I know states had to do exercises where they watched hunters during those early teal seasons and you know they had to get a certain score at each state to be able to open those teal seasons for shooting at elite you know birds that aren't teal so there's that's had to be factored in but you know i don't i've heard very few stories um but it's got to happen but that you know that's a law enforcement issue that's not a biological one yeah, it's just a, it's, there's just so many things wrapped around the idea of a no limit kind of deal to where I just I just sit there and say, well, there's reasonings why you're you want all of these birds dead. Um, but I think that there's a lot of like the email that I just read you that I received is like, you, well, what is, what would a man like that think about a snow goose hunt? Does his feelings feel the same about a bunch of snow geese dying with 13, 14? I mean, see, I've seen guns up at like 20 guns in a field, you know, yeah. laying in whites. I wonder if his views would be the same on snow geese as it is to the duck. Yeah. You know, ducks coming in. And, a pintail and hunt. A pintail hunt or a mallard hunting corn and, or peas in Oklahoma. I wonder if a guy like that's mind switches. It's too hard. We can't even have a discussion on that because none of us, we're not going to call him. But I wonder if somebody like that has the same feelings for snow geese or if he's just like, ah, oh, that's okay. Then you can go out and have a hundred guys shooting those things. I don't care. They're yeah. ruining the tundra. Yeah. You know, and keep in mind the snow geese too, it's it's a double whammy, or I'd say it's actually a triple whammy when you consider the Pacific Flyway. You know, one is to kill them, like you said. Second, especially in the Pacific Flyway, is to bump them into public land areas to, for crop depredation issues, which I don't fully understand that concept, but I know it's front and center. And then third, which has been shown with the greater snow geese in the Atlantic flyway, is just constant pressure, chasing them around, not letting them feed, sends them north in worse body shape, and they're going to breed at a reduced rate. They've actually have evidence, you know, with greater snow geese that you harass them enough, they're going up there skinny and they're not going to produce as many. So that's, you know, it's just as good as killing some. So you're kind of saying in layman's terms that the pressure on them is going to kill them but it also it won't kill them it'll have them make less goslings less goslings it won't yep. it'll kill their sex drive or kill their ability to mate yep. and breed so in the long run are you kind of saying that snow geese are are um how would i say it that snow geese are snow goose hunters are taking a chance of ending snow goose hunting by doing putting that much pressure on geese oh for sure yeah i'd say it could be but i've seen no evidence of such you know the last Five years, what, three of them have been reproductive busts, with this last year probably being the worst bust ever recorded. And yet they're still doing fine. And, you know, in the last five years, it's more weather-driven than hunter-driven. It's more weather-driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those, the three out of the last five years is all conditions during hatch. Come here, man. What are you doing? <laughs> have you met my dog yet? Nope. Oh, but it's I'm impressed you got a yellow dog. Hey, Duff, say hi. Okay, sit. Um, so with, I wanted to, this was on my notes too, is as a biologist with the conditions that you're seeing right now, the water, the storms, the amount of snow in North Dakota, South Dakota, they just got another eight inches like 10 days ago. What is, what's going off in your mind as a biologist of 
what will this parlay into with the duck factory and the populate the the migration coming in 1920? No, I think yeah. Start. Uh, I think for ducks, we're in excellent shape. Geese, it's a crapshoot. You know, if you haven't seen the changes that have gone on, you know, three out of those last five years, you know, you don't know what to expect. You know, one thing is is what so. 18 was a reproductive bus. 17 was probably one of the biggest production years ever for, for Arctic geese. And we probably had more geese in the world in fall 2017 than have ever been recorded. Really? You know, so we go from one of the biggest production years to the worst production years. But what you have this year now, we have no idea what hatch conditions are going to be like. You know, Alaska's warmer than ever recorded a lot of the rivers have been breaking this last week in alaska two weeks ahead of the record earliest river breakups you know so Alaska's warming up fast this year but you know with geese they typically don't start breeding till they're two years old so this year 2019 you know we've got this massive cohort that hatched in 2017 that can now breed this year so, I mean, if the stars line up where we have good weather, you know, during hatch, everybody gets up to the Arctic in good shape, we could make up for these last three years of poor production in one year. In one year, you can replace what happened, not replace, but you can... Make up for those three years where we made almost zero goslings. And what about ducks? Well, ducks, you know, they're nesting in the prairies. And for some reason, you know, even with all the loss of CRP and everything... Duck numbers are pretty close to record highs, which those records were set not that long, you know, three, four years ago. So ducks are in pretty good shape. And with the weather on the prairies, you know, things opening up, you know, it looks pretty good. Is When you start talking about the, the federal mandates and the federal regulations of a duck season, what is the reasoning behind the 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 very last day that you can legally harvest a duck in the continent of the United States? Yeah, I think it's all, you know, it comes down to laws when written were either intentionally or accidentally written non-clear. And I think that's, you know, the interpretation. You know, someone might have said the end of January once, and, you know, at some time we interpreted that as the last Sunday in January because everyone wants to end on a weekend. You know, so that came into play. And, you know, I just saw today there's something out of, you know, California Waterfowl and CDF&W that, you know, they're adopting the January 31st into their regulation. So it's all how do you interpret the end of January? You know, it's kind of like we were told we could have three and a half months for duck hunting. That comes out to 107 days, supposedly. You know, so that's why we have a 107-day duck season, because three and a half months was interpreted to equal 107 days. That's why, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, any laws could be intentionally or accidentally written non-clear. You know, some people say gray. So if you did push the duck season back, would it biologically screw ducks up if you didn't, if you were hunting them into February? Or they would it would it mess up their, their pairing and their... Oh, and yeah. their No, there's a master's project from a gal that I was just talking to yesterday. Um, She's in Michigan now, and she actually, you know, did her master's through Delta Waterfowl, and they had captive mallards that they'd let them pair up, and they had them all in pens and stuff, and then they'd randomly 
act like one of them got shot. You just grab the mail out of the pair and throw a new mail in there. And they did it, you know, December, January, February, March. And yeah, it actually lowered production of that hen. You know, the later in the year that she has to form a new pair bond, it takes energy to go to the singles bar, you know, hitting up all these males and then pulling it off. You know, she's, she's behind the ones that didn't lose their mate. You know, and I did a paper as part of my PhD looking at that with Brant. And yeah, it actually, if, um, yeah, the later in the year they get shot, it might take them two years to enter their breeding population again, just because of all that energetics of finding a new mate and, you know, a new place to nest and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty comfortable with the biological reproduction component stopping the end of January. I think biologists are pretty comfortable with that. But anything beyond that, I think it's coming, well, data shows it's coming with a cost. You know, kind of going back to that, you know, the snow geese stuff, I was talking about the greater snow geese, you know, being able to hammer them into March and April. Yeah, you're, you're messing up those pair bonds and you're indirectly lowering their reproductive potential. So in your, I have two part question. One, do birds of a feather, I mean, how do I say this? Do ducks and geese mate for life? Geese, definitely. Ducks, okay, so what has to have, what's the main thing? I'm, I'm just walking you through this. What's the main thing for a pair to last to next year? What do you think the main thing would be? There's an educational lesson here. Oh, I like it. So you're asking me if if I if if a if a you pair, have a geese pair or standing duck. here, what is the main driver for that same pair to be together in 12 months? Doesn't matter on ducks or geese. You're just saying these yeah, are ducks. Yeah, doesn't matter. What's the main driver for them to be standing here in 12 months together, holding mm-hmm. hands still? This is the driver for the difference between ducks and geese. This is an educational lesson here. Um, the driver for them still to be together. And it involves math. So I'll walk you through a math exercise after you come up with this. It's almost like a duck riddle. I like this. So for them to be together 12 months from right now. I can can answer it for you. They have to reproduce a certain amount the year before? They don't have to breed this year. They can skip breeding and they're still holding hands next year, right? Now, they could divorce, and we have papers on that, but we don't have to go into that kind of nerdy detail. But ducks and geese, geese, I should back up, geese rarely divorce, but they do. I don't, you threw me off by saying it's a math question, and I'm not that smart, so you yeah. should be ashamed of yourself well, for making me well, feel you, dumb. Well, you right? walked through it there, you know, so we have this pair standing here now, and we have hopefully a pair standing together a year from now, and you mentioned, well, did they breed or not? No, they could fail at breeding, or they could have not bred at all, and they're still holding hands. The main driver is they both have to live one year, right? So if you take like geese, say snow geese right now that are doing awesome, 10% of them die annually, 90% of them live from this year to the next. So you got two geese here. So you take 0.9, that's 90%, right? And you square it, that's 0.9 for her and 0.9 for him. You take that, that equals 0.81. So if you have 100 pairs, that means 81% of them are going to have both pair members living next year, right? So that's the math part. Ducks, you get like a mallard. Only about 70% of them live from one year to the next. So for a pair to be alive next year, let's take 0.7 raised to the second power, 
0.7 times 0.7 is 0.49. Let's say half. Half the mallard pairs alive right now have both members of that pair live next year. So I think it's that higher mortality rate that those ducks have that if they live, they probably would stay together. But with geese, they have those higher survival rates, so they're more likely to have pair bonds that go forever. They live a long time. Both of them do. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. But I'm really yeah. surprised that 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 many mallards are killed out of any given year's population or any given year's count. And that's not hunted. That's how many die. And that's That's predators, natural mortality that's natural. and harvest. And harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got lots of estimates of that stuff. Now, would those ducks that you shot... Would they have died if you wouldn't have killed them? That's the big question, but that's a whole other topic there. <laughs> but staying on topic here on your math equation for geese. Yeah, for pair bonds. So 10% die. Is that for mean, snow geese. For snow geese. So let's say, let's... That's really high for a waterfowl. Okay, and what would... what would A blue-winged teal, 70% of them die annually. 70%? And how many... Canada, yeah, 60%. How many geese die? How many Canada geese die annually? Big Canada's in a typical situation. Yeah, let's just say graders or big Canada's, yeah. yeah. I'd say it's probably a little, it's similar to snow geese. They're, they're badass. So almost, so almost 90% of them survive to mm-hmm. where a year later, 90% of that population, 80.81 would be, would be your squared. Mm-hmm. So 81% of, those, of pairs those pairs will be a pair again the next year. Okay. So. <laughs> See, there's fun stuff. There's yeah, nerd love, biology nerd, stuff nerd, right nerd, here. Bird nerd stuff. So. If one of those couples, though, if only one of the birds dies out of that couple, mm-hmm. you're saying that a Canada goose, there's evidence that she'll never breed again if he's gone? No, I would say not. It depends on her age. An older hen, yeah, she's not going to go through it, you know. But a younger hen, oh, yeah, they'll find another. So why another do they mate. say they mate for life if they don't die? They'll stay with that same one. Right. If both stay of them stay alive, them. they'll stay together. I mean, we say this with all these long-lived species because it's it takes a lot of, this is all basic bird ecology stuff. The longer you live, usually the more both parents put into raising the kids, you know, because it's hard to raise kids because they're so, their energy, so energy requirements are so high, you know, but you get someone that and just think about how it could go. Let's say you've got this island on a golf course in your neighborhood, and every year there's a pair there. You know, and the first year you move in, yeah, it's John and Rose are the geese's names. And they're there, and John dies, but Rose repairs with Fred. And then Rose dies, and Fred meets up with another one. So you get this inheritance of a nesting site from, you know, pairs just dying and repairing. So people without bands on them, oh, yeah, that's Fred and Rose at the beginning. You know, and 20 years later, that's still Fred and Rose. No, that's probably five pairs removed from Fred and Rose. Without bands, you can't tell. That's why we don't just ban ducks to see how many of them get shot. We also ban them to do those kind of studies, the more basic ecology of waterfowl, which I find more exciting these days, just learning how a duck ticks or a goose ticks. God, that is so interesting to know that that if a if a duck and a, if a if two geese survive the migration, natural hunting, whatever it is, if they survive, they'll keep going. I it's, it it says something though about their infrastructure and their in their communication and like you get a flock of ten thousand geese in a field in in Colorado in the Front Range. How in the hell does she know who he mm-hmm. is? Okay, well, here's a good example. So we'd ban thousands of brant at a time, 
You know, so this is when the goslings, they'll fly at 42 days. We're catching them at like 30, 35 days of age, you know, big, so that they can, you know, take the trauma of getting caught. You know, it's not that bad. We rarely kill a bird. But it's a lot nicer on the birds and they're bigger rather than little fuzzballs. But before banding, they have to hatch. At hatch, we work these brant colonies where almost everybody's banded, you know, because we banded there for 50 years now. And, you know, we go around and you can walk right up to the nest. He's standing there all angry. He's banded. You read his band. She jumps off the nest. You read her bands. Okay, we got bands for both these. Hatch day comes. We put web tags on the, on the goslings. So now they're marked, and we know that web tag number one went with that pair. And then at banding drives, we'll catch that pair and those goslings. And it's, you know, I could show you some videos sometimes, but it's kind of mayhem. You know, it's a circle about as big as your room here, netting. It's like a corral. And you could push hundreds of birds into this. And as you walk into it, they all run in a circle around you. And it's complete mayhem. And you're grabbing birds and putting bands on them. You're putting them in another pen when they're done, just waiting their turn to get released. And it's crazy. I mean, you'll let them all go and they'll run out about 200 yards and they all stop for the most part. And they're all just calling. It's the loudest calling you've ever seen. There's goslings calling, parents calling. You'll see a parent run all the way across the group of birds to go to a gosling. And then all of a sudden they run off together. And then I've gotten pictures from people on the wintering grounds where we'll have two adults and five goslings all banded. They got a picture. You can read all all seven bands in this family group. And sure enough, there's that pair that we saw at that nest. And we look at the banding records. We put these five gosling bands on, five goslings that had web tags, which were put on a nest attended by these two hens. Oh, they scream just as good as your family would if your kids got lost at a stadium. I don't put it past them at all. Honestly, wow. I've, I've seen this so many times and it blows my mind or other times, even, even if there aren't goslings involved when, in the spring, when we come up to this nest, you'll have many nests where he'll jump off, she'll jump off and their bands are almost sequential. You know, we put them on, we, our bands are in order when we're banding. And for that to happen, when you're in that pen and they're running in circles while you're trying to catch 10 a piece, 10 at a time to give to the banders to band, they're basically running in that mayhem holding hands and you're catching them together, give them to the banders and they're banded at this, you know, you and I are sitting next to each other. I got the male, you got the female, we let them go. And next year we see them at the nest and their bands are in order. Does that blow your mind? Oh, it's it, still, the first time you see it, it's like, But it like, doesn't wow. anymore? Like to me, that's amazing. Oh, it just happens all the time. All these the pair bonds, birds are a lot smarter than you give them credit to. And this is where it's interesting. You know, I used to get on a lot of the hunting forums and stuff, especially with Brant, because we have such good breeding data on them, you know, describing our process for this. But guys would be like, oh, yeah, I went here and I shot this, this Brant. And it's like, hey, that's cool. I'd pull up the data and give them a whole paragraph. Yeah, that bird was banded 16 years ago as a gosling. These were its parents. Its parents bred 10 more years, this hen started breeding the one you shot at age three. She laid five eggs this year, and you go through 10 years of breeding records. She laid 60 eggs, you know, 40 of them got web tagged, 20 of those got banded, and 10 of them came back as breeders. Two got shot, and people are like, oh, they just get overwhelmed with the data they have, and they're like, we almost feel guilty for shooting that bird. And that's not my goal. It's just I like teaching people about bands you know and we've had these discussions too 
you know, why are there bands on waterfowl? And a lot of the bands we put on is just for harvest management, but a lot of them are for these really neat applied basic questions for ecology of these birds. You know, how do they tick? And those are the questions I find more interesting. And being a scientist of, and a bird nerd, has there been any research or studies done or would it ever be possible? Because you talked about, you know, you put all this pressure on snow geese and whacking them into May, you know, all the way into May in some states, northern North Dakota, Saskatchewan, Alberta. Does Alberta have a spring season? I don't they know do now. They, they do now. They just started about three years ago. Yeah, and to go into Nunavut. And it costs, yeah, and it causes emotional distress on them to where they, they don't breed as strong. Mm-hmm. If that bird... I wouldn't that, call it emotional distress. Okay, that, well, that's sounding right. a little greeny there, Chad. Okay, so now greeny. If I'm sounding too green, tell me. Has there been studies on a Canada goose? If she watches him get smoked in a decoy spread or a red fox eat him, does it mess with her psyche at all? No, I don't. I think she's definitely confused for a few days. But, you know, you watch these birds and, um, you know, they get back into it. Just like your dog... Let's, you know, I've had, I raised my own dogs. I'll have a litter. I just tried breeding my dog and it didn't work. But imagine those days where I have the mom and the offspring and eventually mom will die. You know, that young dog's not herself for like three or maybe five days. And after that, she's back to normal. We all are. That's kind of life, right? But you get another puppy or if your spouse dies, you know, you might find another spouse. It's, I, I don't think it's really different. I, I think... Wildlife are a lot smarter than we give them credit for because I've handled a lot of them with this really in-depth data. It's pretty cool. No, it's way more than just cool. I mean, it's like, it's mind-blowing to me that you're, this story you just, or this sample example you just gave of this island in a golf course and this breeding colony of yeah. how it how it goes back and forth like that. And you can you can compare that to real, you know, human life as well. And, and how anthropomorphic life. you want to make it, go for it. And you can you know? do it as, yeah, I don't know what that word it might make you quit, quit hunting eventually if you started <laughs> crying and I get it, you know, I mean, actually that analysis I did was spawned from a very good friend's wife that never wanted to hear the stories of these birds we were shooting with pair bonds. And we'd get into these discussions, you know, infused with some wine at Thanksgiving and you know, it's like next day I'll go in. It's like, I'm going to look in the data and see if there's actually enough in here. And like for us, for me to do that analysis for my PhD, one chapter, I mean, we've probably marked 180,000 brand over 40 years, 30 years of intense data. And when it all came down to it, out of all those brand, I had 52 pairs that I could do that analysis with. 180,000 birds, you had 52 pairs, 104 of those 180,000 birds is all met you, the criteria met the to criteria. do that question. And tell me, tell me exactly what the criteria would be, or do you remember it? Oh, well, it would be, you know, you had to see them both breeding together. So you knew they were a pair. Then you had to have a record from a hunter reporting that male getting shot and then look at the probability of her coming back to breed because females come back to where they nest. So we didn't care if the girls got shot because if he lost her wife, his wife, she's going to go back to where his new spouse is from. Does that make sense? Right. Males go everywhere. That's how waterfowl are. They, they go back to where the females from. So we just studied the females. So yeah, we had to have identified as a pair and him shot that same year so that we knew they were still together and then watch until she comes back breeding. Or we recite her somewhere else. So we knew she was still alive. 
Has any of you just made a comment about, well, you might quit hunting, you know, the further you get into this, has it changed the way you look at your hunt or your harvest at all? No, you're no. a killer. It's, it all comes out, but you wash. don't hunt Canada geese because you say they're boring, but it, I think there mallards. might, I think there might be something going on, Chris, that they, they made for life and it made you sad at one time. No, no. God, how many cranes, <laughs> you know, I can, okay, here, I can remember one year, one of my friends went up with me a year. My old dog, my current dog's mom was dying of lymphoma. I took, she wasn't even supposed to live by the time we went to Saskatchewan. So I go up with both dogs and a really good friend went with me that year and he made it like, I think 48 hours till he got the call from his wife saying the baby's coming five weeks early, get home. So I had to get him to Saskatoon. He left. Next thing you know, I'm hunting in Canada for nearly two weeks alone with my two dogs. So I had the whole decoy spread by myself. We lived like cavemen. Yeah, we had no standards. I was hunting alone for two weeks in Canada. It was awesome. But I was sitting there, you know, shooting my side by side and six, six, uh, Ross geese come in, two white ones, four gray ones. It's like, huh, you know, I only got two shots. So they come in 30 yards, poof, poof, both white ones fall. The goslings keep flying around, poof, poof, two more of the gray ones. They come back again, poof, poof, all six of them are dead, you know, and you see stuff like that. And I can remember in places in Alaska, we'd kill a whole group of white fronts the same way, shoot the adults first, the kids come back swans you see you can only shoot one so i mean you got two white ones coming you kill one of them the other one will fly around you know it's that would pull the heartstrings of anybody if that doesn't like ah that kind of sucks you're kind of goofy but you know they'll repair i put money on it they'll all repair by next year they're gonna you know I guess, lack of better words, be sad or mourn for a week or two, but they get over it. So what happens to those four gray, blue, they were, these were all, Gosling. these were all goslings. They were first year geese that were with their parents. You ended up smoking the whole family, but what if you would have let the kids go after you smoked kind of feel bad a little bit, wouldn't you? So I did it the right way. Yeah, it's like, okay, do you not shoot them at all? Or the alternative is just take out the whole family so no one's And what happens alternatively if you don't? Do they go get mixed up with some other birds and they're, a they're, they're fine or do they, are they smoking? Yeah, by that age, families are already starting to break up naturally. So they're, they're capable of getting picked up by somebody else or they just hang out with the bunch like anybody else does, you know? Man, so it's, it's, a, we don't have money to study those kind of questions. Yeah. <laughs> we don't spend hunters money to spend that, to address those kind of questions. So. But you do spend hunters' money, and rightfully so, and need it on a banning initiative. And in 2019, is the banning initiative at an all-time, as far as the strength scale goes, is it as strong today as it was five years ago? Is it getting stronger? Where are we at right now For banning? with your ability to go do the studies that you need to do? And it, no, banning in the last 10 years has probably been quite stable. Stable. Yeah, but you know, budgets have been declining. You know, we're losing the older guys that are really good at it, and the new guys that are coming in aren't necessarily waterfowl guys, you know, or they don't have those skills. It's, you know, it's a lot of stuff I think about. Almost everything we do for careers has some type of art to it, you know? Yeah, and I think that... Catching ducks is an art. But did banding get slowed down because of... Well, did net collaring slow down? Neck collaring is almost over. Now why? Two things. One, putting a neck collar on a goose increases its likelihood of dying naturally. 
But then secondly, it also increases its chances of getting shot. Because of the trophy aspect? Yeah, just because of the visibility of it. Because there was some stories back in the mid-2000s of white, white for, you know, snow geese getting shot with rifles from far distances because you could yeah, pick their several people out, sh- killed in one, decoy spreads. Yeah, that was... In Canada. That was a while. That's 10 years ago, but he was in... Snow goose spread. He was in Ontario, wasn't he? Or was he in Quebec? Yeah, but he was associated with a decoy company or something. I'm sorry, I can't remember his yeah, name. I think he was, yeah, was part of the Migration X team or the... the it the, was. Their destina- the Destination X yeah, class. Yeah, it was greater snow geese kind of stuff. With and, Fred Zink, yeah. Yeah, it's that bad where people are accidentally catching a bullet due to a, a sniper going after a goose collar, you know? Yeah, I mean, that whole... The whole banding thing's different, um, you know, and as managers, we're trying to estimate, you know, things that are important to make sure we get to hunt next year and the year after. You know, like, for example, let's say we did 100 geese in this pen and 100 geese in this pen. This 100 also got neck collars and these just got metal bands. And hunting season comes and let's say... 80% of the ones, so 80 of the 100 with neck collars got shot that season, where the ones with metal bands, probably 5 to 8% of them got shot. Which one would you rather, which one would you want to set next year's hunting regulations with? So. The one that's more truthful or the one that's probably massively skewed towards overharvest? I would want truthful. Right. That would be the metal onlys rather than a metal with a collar. Well, what was the point of a net collar in the first place? So you could find them easier? I think it was, yes, it was an early stab at getting more data because typically we ban birds and hunters shoot them and report them and that's it. You release them, hunters call you. Then you get some cooler studies where you band them, they go through a hunting season. Next year's banding, you also write down the ones that already have bands. That's another neat source of data there for us. But then also you could put collars on so you could recite them in the winter so that you bumped your sample sizes up. And, you know, to be fair, you know, there's always been a few people targeting collars. There's, there's always been somebody, but I'd say it really exploded, you know, 15 years ago. And it's, you know, most waterfowl biologists won't put a, a collar on a Canada goose in most situations there are exceptions do you think it's because you've been around it so much and you understand the the data that banding and net collaring provides for the overall wellness and good of the species of geese or ducks do you think that you could say that that's the reason why you do it right and you would never be like so giddy because myself i don't when i see a caller i don't like flip out but maybe no, it's because I'm around it so much. But there's a lot up. of people that do. But no. the question is no, why? the guy that shoots at him with a rifle. The on question field. is why? Yeah. Why does somebody want that piece of plastic? Why does, $4 piece of plastic. And why does somebody want that? How much does a band cost? For they're free for us. Yeah, so, 10 cents. So why does somebody want a 10 cent band? Is it, It's almost like a, a, a UFC belt around your waist. Yeah. If you see somebody with a lanyard and you're like, man, that guy knows how to hunt. No, he doesn't. It doesn't mean he's a badass. He might've gone a lot. Mm-hmm. He might've been hunting around a place where they banned a lot of birds. Yep. Or he might've been specifically targeting him as well. Targeting bands, which I know guys that do this too. I also mm-hmm. know guys that are very lucky. 
a mutual friend of ours is very lucky. I'm very lucky. You're very lucky when it comes I mean, to shooting I, bands. I went and did a hunt in the Atlantic Flyway for the first time. I killed six birds and came home with three bands. Really? Yeah. Canada's? Uh, Eiders and Brant. Oh, you were doing Eiders and Brant. So... I just you go don't. all the way to the Atlantic Flyway to shoot Canada's. I have oh my to, god! To Baltimore. And, and in the, in the, I couldn't waste that gas money, the man. Freaking, I think Canada's right there. I know, and the, I think the limit is one. <laughs> Ouch. Well, it's two now, but it was one when I was there a couple times. But it's the goose hunting capital of the world, the, the Chesapeake Bay. Remember, they always call that. So the nostalgia of goose hunting's there. Mm -hmm. But I still can't. I, I just can't get it in my head of like. If you're a trophy mule deer hunter, I understand you see a big rack and you're like, oh my God, like this is what I've been waiting for. I'm going to dedicate the next 90 days to sleeping with them and patterning well, him and getting him. It's that whole trophy thing. How do you enter it into duck world? Oh, my, my mallard had six curly tails, you know, or this was an 18 pound honker, even though a decoy company did a contest years ago with huge prizes and no one sent one in over 15, you know, or you get, oh, it's got a band on it or... Yeah, I know one of the goofball King Eider folks actually made an equation for measuring the lobe on a King Eider. I mean, it's like, really? I mean, you had width and all this stuff is like, wow. You know, I'd rather just say I shot a pretty duck and either eat it or put it on your wall, you know? But why would somebody want it? What? I just don't get it. I don't understand the significance of having jewelry or a band. And it's almost like, has the media made it to where it's this something that's you got to have banded mm -hmm. birds uh jewelry how yeah. much jewelry do you well, have i mean look like, at your industry i mean even your company's name's banded i you named know? the company banded right. because of the significance of it yep and you look at you know all the decoy companies coming out or the call makers or you know even bags or waiters there's always bands you know you open a du magazine and every photograph of a hunter has bands and it's like we've in the last 15 years or so we've really cranked up that bar of you got to have bands to be a cool duck hunter god know? here i am asking you why people do it and then you and then i'm sitting here going i named a company bandit and we've had these discussions as long but, as we've known each other but i've Chad. never but I've, I've never ever have scoped out a band i don't even know if my vision is good enough but i've been with hunters that have come up without me calling the shot oh he's banded boom Hmm. They see yeah, it. They I mean, spot them. I've killed a good number of bands for many reasons, and I bet you about half a percent of the bands I've shot, I saw as I was pulling the trigger. You know, I didn't see them before I was pulling on this bird, but right as I was lining up that shot, a foot hung out or a flare happened, and right as I was squeezing, it's like, oh yeah, it's happened twice. I shot a golden eye once and then one of those common eiders on the East Coast right as I was squeezing it. That leg stuck out and it's like, yep, that one's banded. Yeah. But otherwise, no. I mean, I know people, you know, there's one decoy company in particular that I've had interviews in magazines with that, you know, they're targeting bands and, you know, it causes issues. It's a big topic. It's made biologists change some of the way we do business and have to use more expensive methods to get the answer we need to keep those seasons open. I'm trying to figure out what you just said. You're trying to figure out how to get data without actually placing a band, a right. visible band. So here's a good example, Aleutian Canada geese. You know, where do you think they nest? Way oh, the hell out yeah. in the Aleutian Islands. Yeah, the Aleutian Islands. Cost you a hundred grand to fly a banding crew out there. A lot of money. So instead they can catch a smaller number with rocket nets and they put collars on their 
on them. And then we spend like Bill Henry. We just sent Bill Henry over to the coast to go read collars for four days because this is how we do estimate how many there are so that we can set next year's hunting regs. And it's a lot cheaper to catch a smaller number in California than to send a crew to Alaska to catch the same number. So we're trying to do a cheaper method. And luckily with Aleutians, they're a little harder to kill. So it's hard to target those, but we know there's people that are starting to target Aleutian collars. You know, they're figuring out how. And then what are we gonna have to do to maintain this data stream without biasing the things we're trying to estimate, you know? So what would your message be to a hunter or somebody that might be going to talk to a group of waterfowl hunters? What, what is your message about banding? Is it leave them alone, don't target them. If you do get one, follow the protocol and call it in and get the data to us, you know, where it was killed and all of that. But what would your message be? Don't target them. Don't even look for bands. If it happens, it happens. I'd, yes, I and mean, don't target them. And I know people that'll have one box of shells for the whole season and they'll kill 14 geese that year and all 14 of them will be banded. Because they're targeting them? Yeah, that's all they do. They'll land 10,000 geese a day. Some days they don't even pull the trigger. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's rampant. It's dumb. It's yeah. dumb. Am I, am I'd, I'd be willing dumb? to bet we have some mutual... We, we both know of some people that this is how they work. And you haven't said anything to them or have? Oh, yes. There's different ways to go about doing things. <laughs> some have been friends that I'm like, really, you do this? And then others, like I said, one decoy company in particular, we both worked on an article together in Wildfowl Magazine and nothing was accomplished. You know, some people don't get it. But, I mean, you look at it, I mean, it's the money we're spending on our licenses and stamps are funding these projects. And then people can ruin those efforts. So it, it gets tricky. Tricky as in, I understand it gets tricky in figuring out different ways to get your dad and study right. these birds, but is it going to get truck tricky on preserving these, ha the habitats, preserving these populations of birds to, populations, to, yep. to ensure that this, this lifestyle and this, this is a blessing to be able to hunt. It's a privilege right. this, that ensuring that this privilege is around in 50 years. I mean, it's, right. it's hard to say because you're like, well, they've been duck hunting for a hundred years, but with everything that the ability that we have now to the way we're farming, the way that we can travel, the way that we can decoy, the way that we can get, are we putting the, the actual heritage or the actual privilege of hunting waterfowl hunting in jeopardy? Yes. If we're even going as far as freaking killing 14 banded birds, cause we're pattern or we're, we're scoping them out and targeting no. them. No, I'd say so. I mean, we, yeah, and I don't want to get into the specifics of some things, but I mean, there's been situations where the data is known to have some of these problems and we come up with an answer and it doesn't jive with what we're seeing. It's like, okay, how come this number's off? You know, we start factoring in this stuff and all of a sudden it lines up and it's like, huh? So the cheap method we use to do this is no longer working because, you know, it's the system's getting bucked. So... The system's getting bucked, but you're... you're like I said, that example before, we have 100 metal bands only here and 100 metal bands and collars over here. 80% of these get shot with the collars and 5% with the metal bands, or most people can't see those. But you can see, I mean, 
It's 100 and 100. How come they didn't get shot at the same rate? It's because these got targeted because the collars, you know, were red on a white goose. You know, they stick out like a sore thumb. You know, would you want to manage next year's harvest regulations on this 80% harvest rate or this 5%? Five. Yeah, because you know it's less biased. It's probably closer to truth. Right. You know, or that if we did this, we'd close the season down now in three years because, you know, we're studying neck collar geese. So, yeah, I mean, that's the so stuff. So what, what I'm seeing in the back play of this whole deal, though, is that if if you are one of these guys, these guys that are probably searching these bands out, they probably don't give a shit if they get the data or the certification for that band. So they're probably not even reporting, reporting. them. So, so reporting all of it's different. all of it's a waste. Mm -hmm. So now your your now your information and your studies and your data is totally skewed because there's a lot of birds that are potentially getting but killed wait with here. bands. Listen to this. We could do another study to learn how to correct our initial study to make it right. Do you like that? <laughs> So all that's going to do is cost more money. That's going to take more of your time when yeah, your efforts your license are, dollars, and no. you and, and you need to be concentrating your efforts on something else that's going to benefit again the the future generations of being able to have this lifestyle and and, and this privilege of hunting. So really, there's no reason to 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 target a band. What is the message we can get out to somebody and be like, listen, this is, is there a way to get it out when, when in the media, in an article of saying, we know that banded has be banding is popular or shooting a band has become popular or a trophy that people are, that sought after. Uh, like you said, our company's name banded and maybe that was a mistake to do so because in reality you're promoting that having bands on your lanyard makes you a better duck hunter. It makes you a more seasoned, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a, a valor deal. Like, Hey, look at me, raw, raw, look at me. But now it's gotten to the point to where people are, are, are seeking them out and it's totally de de deceitful information that, that we could be getting back from you guys because the studies might be skewed some. Right. No, like I said, I mean, each of us contribute dollars for our hunting licenses, our taxes on our ammunition, firearms. We pay to get these studies done to legally make sure we can hunt next year and the year after. And it's when we skew these, you know, be it on a survey or shooting a marked bird on purpose, you know, banded bird on purpose, it's like burning your own license dollars. So, yeah, and... It, that's why I like coming and talking, you know, to someone like you or go to groups. You know, I'm going to go up to Washington in a couple of weeks and talk with a group. And, you know, it's to get the word out and get people thinking, you know. Everyone thinks the biologists are out to get them. As you know, I hunt just as much as most people. I'm out there active. I'm a hunter as well, but I also took this path down biology because I wanted to make sure we could keep hunting these things. So, I mean, I know all of us have conspiracy theories about each other, but... That's why I like to get out and it's like, guys, I'm a hunter as well and a biologist. And, you know, I like to share these stories and get people thinking. So I get a lot out of talking with folks like you. No, and I do too. And that's why I, I, your knowledge needs to be known. People need to understand that as simple as that is that you either do, you kill a band for the right reason in the right way to get you this, the information that you need to provide the right data to ensure that this privilege is around for years and that we can hunt next season, or you don't care about a band. And now it's like sending mixed messages. You pick up a magazine, whether it's DU or whether it's Wildfowl or whatever, abandoned, you know, the abandoned season and our first band and, you know, and, and the, you know, it's fine to promote it. I get that it, it's needed, but it needs to be said that it's, it, you can't, 
think of a band as a trophy. It's not a trophy. Mm, now, it's a management you, tool. It's a management tool. Mm -hmm. So that's see, totally that's, that's totally different than trophy big game hunting because you can have a management deer deer herd. I get that you can manage your deer herd and you can say don't kill a three year old or a four year old. But out here west, when you're going after a mule deer and you see a 180 inch or 190 inch buck, you that that's a trophy to you. It might 160 inch buck might be a trophy. But see, to you. you get to bring something like that in Nevada and you can bring up the trail camera law that just got passed recently. You know where people are just carpeting public lands with trail cameras and then selling the locations of these monster bucks they're getting pictures for it's brutal it's freaking it's brutal like you can't make this and 10 years ago we would have never thought that would happen no you know but in a perfect world we're all honest we'd all keep a journal of how many hen mallards we shot hen widgeons we shot perfect and we'd submit it every year and it would be pure honesty you know we wouldn't even have to estimate stuff because we had the true numbers but it's not a perfect world, and that's where we have to spend this money to estimate things, to try, because we have a legal obligation. Hunting season's closed by default. We can't open it without data. Legally, we can't, hunting season's closed right now. We have to reopen it for next year, and we can't reopen it without newly collected data to justify opening it. Speaking of data, did you see the article or the new the national news report of where did the ducks go and the Arkansas duck hunter? Did you no, see, I did, did you see, see that, that one? Did, um, I'm going to send it to you after this, but it, it was it was um, put out for. God, I wish I knew exactly where it was. Who, who did I send it to? I'll get it to you. But there was a national news report called "Where Did the Ducks Go?" And where I'm going with this is. This was, quote, unquote, a weird duck season if you talk to a lot of different hunters and all different Don't flywheels. talk to the Louisiana boys. Or Arkansas. Boy, I mean, most people in Arkansas, a lot of it, you know, Oklahoma, November phone calls. We're loaded. We're loaded. We got more ducks. Idaho. I talked to a guy in Hagerman the other day. We were shooting the same ducks in January that we were shooting at in November because they got here in November and then they got stale. Mm-hmm. So with the data that you're seeing or that you have in your head or the, the studies that you've done in the past or how I don't even know if you've had enough time to parlay it into this season. Why, Chris? Why did we have such a weird season? Was it because of the storms up north no. early? Is, no, was think, it all Mother Nature related or is it the flooded corn or is it farming for ducks or is it too many refuge systems? Or is it, the, is it too much corn in Montana and in Washington and they don't get down to California and Oregon where they used to? What? I think it's a little bit of all that. All of that. But then, you know, like I've been banding canvas backs a lot for the last five years or so and not this season, but the season before they kind of short stopped. You know, it seemed like they didn't make it all the way to California. Usually... The, almost all my recoveries come from California. Two hunting seasons ago, I got one. You know, but then all of a sudden, birds that I banded before that got shot this year in California. They survived, and then they finally went there and got clobbered. So, I mean, there's a duck that doesn't feed on corn. He's not going to respond to club, you know, corn clubs, and uh, they still short stop. So it's not, it's not totally food driven. But I can see it. I mean, there's. Last week, I was at a training last week with one of the most famous wetland managers. He lives in Missouri, so he's front and center. Actually, probably the people that grow these corn clubs and all these short-stopping places in California or Missouri were all his old students. And, um, you know, I got to learn a lot about wetland stuff last week. But, you know, you get into these hot foods and the corn clubs and all that, and you double whammy it with weather and... You know, I think we're going to start seeing more of this. 
So is it okay to hunt ducks over flooded corn? I've done it twice. And, you know, I'm not, I think the biggest thing I've learned in duck hunting is I'm not a big fan of fixed blinds. I find that quite boring. There's no scouting involved other than which blind should we go to today. But, you know, you're not saying, oh, we should be on this point or that point. We need to make a hide today. We need to get in. It's a gentleman's hunt. You know, a lot of these blinds have a gravel pad underneath the surface of the water to walk out there in mud boots. You know, it's not my kind of thing. That's ethics. It goes back to our initial discussion. You know, should we have them over corn? It seems to me pretty easy to say that if there's a bunch of flooded corn in between the south, southern part of the United States and the northern part, where ducks usually migrate down a river system, down a corridor, down a flyway, whether it's the Pacific, the mountain, the central, or the Atlantic, the Mississippi, not, you know, the, the let me say it again, the Pacific, the mountain flyway, or the central flyway, the Mississippi flyway, and then the Atlantic flyway. Nowadays, there's so much flooded corn in some parts of the country that I would think that there's no reason a duck is going to leave there. A grain-eating duck. A grain-eating duck. A mallard. But that's where I bring up, you know, we're canvasbacks and divers, you know, these clam eaters or submerged aquatic vegetation eaters. They're short-stopping, too, that breaks that link that it's only corn clubs. If just mallards were short-stopping, I'd say all corn clubs. But when you're seeing these other, like, look at uh, Lake St. Clair and, you know, Michigan-Ontario border. I mean, their winter, and Lake Erie, some of their wintering numbers of ducks in the last eight years has skyrocketed and those aren't corn ducks you know so it there's an interplay there an interaction between weather and corn clubs i'd say but it's not just the grain eaters that are doing these weird movements does that make sense yeah and the more that i think about getting there's more than mallards in the world there is no <laughs> doubt i mean there's nothing better than a mallard chris <clears throat> but all those ducks did get to oklahoma in november so they did go past all that flooded corn in November. Why? Why would they do it then and then go back to it? My point is, is that they did fly right over it when all that food's available. A lot of ducks were in Oklahoma and southern Kansas early in the season. They were loaded, you know, way more so than the last two seasons at that time of the year for ducks. They usually do have a lot of geese at that time. But those ducks did fly over all that flooded corn that early saying, you know, well, that's so where we're learning a lot more now. Like, you know, I'm involved with some of these really big telemetry projects in the West. And right now we've got over 700 birds flying around with telemetry devices, ducks and geese. And we're seeing some neat stuff. I mean, yeah, the duck, like you said yesterday, with the Idaho people, all these ducks have been here the whole time. Nah, might think so, but I put money on it. They didn't like last year, California, a real neat one. You know, just an individual bird story. It's a hen gadwall. They put a satellite radio on it. It flew up to, I think it went to Alberta. And in five days, it was back in Susun Marsh in the Bay Area and started nesting. Really? You know, why did she go do this big, huge pre-egg-laying party just to settle in California? You know, the botulism outbreak out in Fallon this last year. I caught a shoveler in July dead that was banded in march in coastal louisiana why did it fly that way it crossed it was part of three flyways to just die here in a botulism outbreak you know so a lot of 
And, and it's been great work. You know, a lot of our stuff has been making maps with bands. You've got a dot. The, the line starts where the bird was banded and the line stops where the bird got shot. And it gives a pretty damn good indication of those four flyways. But what if you could fill in that whole trail going there? Yeah, it's like a story that came out yesterday on the Fish and Wildlife Service website about some of the work I've been doing where one of my radioed birds flew right over my house here this fall. You know, where when you could make more than just a straight line, what would it look like? You know, and this is where these ducks, they come back and forth. Like you've probably been out at the Canvasback Club where one day it's Hoth. I mean, it's frozen. Everyone could be playing hockey everywhere. Two days later, you start getting puddles and the cans and the redheads and the pintails are just piling in. It's like, how'd you guys get here? The water just opened last night. But it makes you wonder how many ducks flew from the Central Valley to the Lahontan Valley, spent an hour, and oh, it sucks, and they go back to the Central or to the Central Valley. Last year, we had a lot of snow geese with collars. Really cool. You know, the prairies froze. They stayed cold a long time last year, longer than this year. Our birds all took their time getting up to, like, uh, Freeze Out Lake in northwest Montana by Great Falls there. And then they sat there for three weeks. We probably had... 20 radioed birds and one day one would go up to like lethbridge alberta and then he'd come back next day two of them would go up there and come back next day another one and they're doing these reconnaissance flights you know just pushing that envelope for migration and then all of a sudden one day it warmed up all of them all of them moved north pretty cool it's very cool so if i have you on a podium and i say chris was the 2018-19 duck season weird do you say quit trying to figure it out they're just being ducks Mm -hmm. or do you say hey all of these factors are really starting to um take a you know take its toll or play its part in manipulating the migration changing the migration is duck hunting changing is it going away are we going to be able to kill a duck in the next 20 years with the way things are going or do you just say hey it's 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 the way it is. Just okay, let- two things there. One, I wouldn't do a knee jerk reaction with one season. If it happens again or a third time, yeah, it's getting real. Second, go talk to the Arkansas Canada goose hunters or Southern Illinois goose hunters. You know, Canada goose hunters. They don't exist anymore. No. Same story. You know, all those geese shorts stopped decades ago. Look at cackling geese, you know, the true Minimas that are now, you know, you go to the Willamette Valley to hunt them. Guess where you hunted them pre-95, pre-1995. Wait, there, you, you're saying before the Willamette Valley push? Yeah. Pre-1995, where did you hunt the years, Two years, they stopped going to California. All of them would go to the San Joaquin and San Joaquin. North Valley, North Sacramento Valley. And, and right around 95, the Willamette Valley switched from small grain farming to grass seed production. And in two years, the entire population would go no further than the Willamette Valley. Two years, they just because turned it right because off. Because they stayed grain up there? They're grass. They love grass seed. Yeah. They'd much rather eat grass seed than, than small grains, you know, like barley or wheat or something. Really? Yeah, and the Willamette Valley just changed their farming practices in two years. So when you say the Willamette Valley, you're talking Oregon, like up to Savvy Island, like St. Helens area, or would yeah. it be ever, just the I-5 corridor through the Willamette Valley? Yeah, same, yeah I'd say all the way down to, um, uh, what's the town? starts with an N, doesn't it? Look at a map. But California? No, it's in the Willamette Valley. How come I can't remember it? 
Eugene. Sorry. Eugene. So you go from Eugene all the way up past Savi's Island, another 50 miles, because that, that corridor of the Willamette Valley there in Washington, you know, uh, Lake, well, yeah, that whole area out to the coast and stuff, there's, there's minimas in there as well. So because the, that part of California started growing grains and got rid of the grasses, the geese said, hey, we're just going to stay here now because you stopped feeding us down there. No, they said it was better up here. As we were passing through Oregon, you guys stopped planting seeds and started gra- growing grass. We're going to stop. We're not going, we're not going to fly any further anymore. Oh, because now the grains are gone. Yeah. They didn't need the grains yeah, later. There was no grains grass. there. And you look at all the geese, even Brant, Black Brant, um, exclude emperors, all the geese are wintering further north than they did 50 years ago. Yeah, geese stopped all that a long time ago. So maybe we're starting to see it with ducks. So does that worry a duck hunter? Are we, should we be you worried should if, if we you live? live in a southern latitude. Yeah, for sure. So you need to... Move north. How far? If I, <laughs> if I live in Stuttgart, do I need to move to Missouri or do I need to move to Minnesota or North Dakota? Yeah, be a good question. Maybe you should just plan on 10-year movements too. Yeah, I mean, you go back exactly to those EPP geese, you know, Eastern Prairie Population geese in the 50s, Arkansas was where you went to clobber them. And then, you know, like the MVP, the Mississippi Valley population of geese, used to all winter down at Crab Orchard, you know, in southern Illinois and all those places. That used to be the goose capital of the world. Yeah. No. That place has been dead for mm-hmm. nearly 20 years. Baff- was it Bafford County? Ballard County. Ballard County. No, that's Kentucky. Yep. yep. But uh, all yeah, in that same pocket. Area. Yeah, same area. Southern Illinois, Crab Orchard, Tim Grounds, his farm, yep. you know, his farm and, and his clubs there before he passed. Now they're all staying in Illinois or Well, Wisconsin. they all go to Ballard County to Mallard Hunt now because there's no Canada goose hunt left in yep. Southern Illinois. They're all well, up. You look at geese. I mean, like I know white fronts and snows are wintering in Indiana and Illinois now. I mean, who would have thought that 20 years ago? So is the the privilege of duck hunting in the continent of the United States in th- under threat right now? No. No. There's more ducks than there's, there's been, we're probably still in the top five duck years ever recorded. You, I can't predict what will happen next year in 10 years, but right now, no, we're doing awesome. So there's no worry. If you've heard people, we're, we're living in the golden age of waterfowling right now. I've heard that a lot. You agree with it? I'd agree with it at a certain scale. I'd have to imagine, hands down, there's never been as many geese on planet Earth as there is this year. Or, yeah, as right now. How much credit do you take for that? Zero. Personally? None. None? That's client, well, other than driving my car and warming up the planet a little bit. So you have nothing to do, it has nothing to do with the data or the studies that you guys have provided through your studies, you're saying that you guys have not made it easier to be a goose in this world? No. Through your efforts? No, I wouldn't say so. It's all stuff that's beyond harvest regulations. Way beyond that. So why? Corn, you know, massive production of corn. Why is the Canada goose in trouble in the Atlantic Flyway again and that the Mm. limit's back down to one again? That one's a surprise. I think they were even going to close it, weren't they? Yeah, they were talking about it. So that one I'm just not familiar with enough. That's three flyways away. I've never worked in the Atlantic Flyway. I've hunted there once. Yeah, but that's an interesting one because that's something that was happened 15 years ago. You know, what's going on? Why are, why are these things so sensitive to these problems? I don't, I don't know the details for those. 
So I, I'm not too much help on that one. I'd just be taking stabs in the dark. Yeah, I get it. I understand. It just blows my mind. Because Call some of those East Coast guys. They'll help you out. Yeah, but I just don't know if they have an answer. But well, the Canada goose hunting on the East Coast is really in the Northeast, right? There's never really been a huge Canada goose hunt or season, I would think, down in the Virginia, Virginia, the South yeah. of Virginia, down there in the Carolinas and Georgia and stuff. It just, it's just weird that that the geese wouldn't be thriving over there with the amount that I don't think the hunting pressure is would be that severe. I mean, and maybe the Eastern Shore it was at one time. I'm sure it was with with yeah, how many hunters would go there. Yeah, all over that. Okay, it could be. Maybe it's just a, a series of years where the hunters are really hitting it hard and it was a little too much. I don't I don't know. So what's the duck doing right now? It's mid-April. We're turkey hunting. Snow geese are moving back north. What are what are the majority of puddle ducks doing? Let's talk puddle ducks. Yeah, Big puddle there's ducks. There's already duckling, mallard ducklings in Reno. Already? We, oh, yeah, someone saw them this week, and there's goslings around already. Our first wood duck eggs around here are probably going to hatch next week. Yeah, my technician was calling me when I was walking in. She texted me during our break there. Yeah, it's happening here. Um, you know, and then you got everything. The last ones are the scoters that they won't nest till June, you know. So, no, it's starting. It's the front curve. But I'd say, you know, early June is when the bulk of the things we like to hunt are hatching. Okay. So then it's early June and those those – ducklings and goslings are being born they're being raised by their mom and dad when what is the next stage in a duck when is it when do they lose their flight feathers the parents the adults will lose their flight feathers in july august so now they're still raising their their broad when they're when they're losing their flight feathers Mm -hmm. that's when you go in and net some of these some of the birds in the airboats for banding and the geese in the arctic with helicopters Okay, with helicopters. So now June and July, August, they they can't fly anywhere. Mm-hmm. Most of them can't fly anywhere. Yeah, usually they can't fly for about three to four weeks. It takes them that long to, you know, they'll look like a pluck bird, and then in four, three and a half weeks, they can fly again. The adults. So what is what is a a, a family of ducks doing to survive at that time that they cannot escape? You know, because they use flight to escape danger. Right. What are they doing? Are they stay? Do you not see them as much? Are they staying undercover more? Exactly. So that's called broodering habitat for ducks. And that's why California is such a big issue right now with mallards because they've lost this the way farming's changed. They don't have this brood habitat anymore. Their eggs are hat. The hens are nesting. The eggs are hatching okay. They have nowhere to take their ducklings. Just farming's changed over there. It's a lot of clean farming. Um, so that's where in the West, it's a big deal right now is we're losing all our wetlands at a huge rate. You know, you look at how fast all our Intermountain West cities are growing. Boise, Salt Lake City, Reno, Denver, Phoenix, you know, any of these, Vegas, you know, any of these places are just growing. And we're losing these more permanent wetlands where a hen can predict where to take her ducklings. Because it's no fun to take them somewhere that dried up a week ago. Or it dries up in two weeks. You know, that causes problems. Ducklings won't live. So where do they go? Belly of a raccoon or a gull or vulture or something like that. Yeah, they die. So the survival rate goes way down because during that time of the broad habitat. So Broods. Brood habitat, I'm sorry. So where where do you... 
what are what are those California ducks doing? Are they is the mallard number decreasing substantially, massively? massively. Are they leaving California and going elsewhere to find that habitat? No, as we mentioned before, that story of ducks chasing the habitat personally, I think is crap. Because every study we've looked at, at the probability of a hen coming back to where she nested last year, that's all they do. You know, we do get some eruptions. Teal, the smaller, shorter-lived ducks, I'd say, are more nomadic. But those medium-sized ducks all the way up to a goose, they want to nest where they were born. Really? Yeah, you're not... We have no data to show that a pintail that normally nests in South Dakota that in a dry year in South Dakota will go nest in the Northwest Territories. We've never, I don't think we have a single data point showing that a hen will move. So the number one reason why California mallard numbers are down is because those... You can probably look it up in that magazine right there. I bet you the numbers are in there. Yeah. It's mainly because of clean farming. Yeah. And there's no habitat for them to take cover in. Right. Yep, there's... There's great nesting cover. The hens are nesting. Nest success is good. But then a week, within a week of them hatching, they're gone because there's nowhere to take them. Wow. That's a pretty common thing. I mean, there's always a, a weak link that breaks the system, you know? So ducks a, need water. Historically, are the mallards that have been harvested in the Butte Sink in California and the Delta, are they locally raised ducks for yep. the most part? Yep. They're so not another, migrators. Now, a friend of mine in Nevada is the same way. If For California and Nevada, if we don't make our mallards, you're not going to get mallards. Why? Because of Washington and Idaho and the corn? No, no. Those ducks, those birds have always stopped there. I mean, the data stream a friend of mine analyzed goes back 50 years. Nothing's changed. It's just those, our southern mallards just do what they do. They just stay here. They're not migratory. It's kind of like the wood ducks I study out here. But those Idaho, those Columbia Plateau mallards, you know, eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, Idaho, those all are coming from one area and they're going to that area. It's like a whole different group of ducks. It's never changed. Never has. 50 years you're saying there's data. They just published a paper a year and a half ago. And they looked at decades of banding data. Really? We're seeing it here. I rarely catch someone else's band when we're banding around here on mallards. And hardly anyone ever catches one of ours. They'll shoot them in California. That is so freaking interesting to me that that we don't get mallards in those two states and that we have to grow them. I mean, yep. that's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like, okay, you know, you might blame it on shortstopping on corn up in the Columbia Plateau. But no, this is our own doing. You know, it's the way we're managing water in our own backyard. And so is it safe to say that mallard hunting in the, in the, in the state of California is in very, very big trouble? There's several people that would say that right now. Yep. Wow. And there's no other factors in it except farming. They've identified its brood ring habitat. I wouldn't say farming, it's water management, you know, which is broad. Is it what refuges are doing? Are we pulling water off too early? You know, what refuges would be responsible for most of the California mallards? Well, I mean, you even add all the refuges together, and that's still a postage stamp of the whole landscape. You know, the bulk of the landscape's rice or completely losing it to nut production. You know, tree farming. You know, yeah, refuges they produce some ducks, but they can't make up the deficit. They're not big enough. 
But hasn't almonds and, and walnuts and, and nuts been being grown in California for hundreds of years, no, decades? Not like this. For a hundred years at least, right? Yeah, but you look, if you could pull, you could probably pull it up on the internet somewhere, you know, look at it, the acreage, you know, rice is declining and nut trees is just going through the roof. Yeah, it's it's a new phenomenon. And in the drought years, you still have to water fruit trees, you know, nut trees, or they're going to die. You know, so that water goes for a big price and no one can afford water for wildlife in the drought years like what we just came out of. You know, a, a nut farmer can pay a lot more money for, for water than a bunch of duck hunters or refugees could. I just am having a hard time and I'm not arguing with you. Won't you won't see me buy a bag of almonds anymore. I'll say that. Really? Nope. Because of what they're doing to ducks. Oh, how about, yeah, and there's a whole nother topic. Think about almond milk. You don't want to know how many almonds it takes to fill up a half-gallon container of almond milk. Really? Just one of those little pet peeves I have. I get it. But it goes back to the duck is what you're saying. Yep. Ducks make the world go around. We merely exist in a duck's world is what I say, Chris. Yep. We merely exist. It's interesting. It's very interesting. That's my stand on the world. I won't eat almonds. What about walnuts? Grown in the same place. Yeah. I got other, I got ducks to eat, turkeys <laughs> to eat. I don't need those vegetables. I'm allergic to all tree nuts. Yeah. There all you go. Perfect. I just, it just blows my mind that, that ducks don't migrate to California, that mallards, mallards don't, don't. I they're, know that sprig do and widgeon and I, yep. I, they're probably the only exception, but to be fair, Gadwalls and cinnamons wouldn't surprise me either. But California's always had a high harvest rate for mallards. Mm -hmm. Nationally speaking, with Arkansas and Louisiana always being, you know, the tops, California's always up there for mallards and overall production. Over, you know, overall overall harvest. harvest, not mallards. Not mallards. I, I bet so, you mallards aren't even in the top 10. They're not. Okay, so then I, I want to make sure. I bet sure. you that magazine has those numbers. No, I'll look it up. But that's that's an interesting point that they are number one for duck hunters in the yeah, field. Yeah, but what do Californians shoot? Spoonies and green wings? I think those are their number two ducks, I'd be willing to bet. Number one and two? Yeah. Mallards oh, nice. are probably right up there. But see, California's different where they shoot a lot of a lot of species a lot of other states shoot a lot of like one or two species yeah california you got a smorgasbord of ducks so it spreads the harvest out a little thinner you know by species but overall yeah overall california's right at the top for total it's just they shoot a lot of different species in california is duck hunting in trouble in california i don't know yes the simple answer is yes, but I'd have to guess every generation before us said the same thing. Um, you know, there's always some new threat, and you could find stuff in the 60s that they were predicting duck hunting would be over by the mid-70s. So there's always concern. There's always a need to support it and back it up and keep it going. It's always, it's always in threat. Is it possible to be successful in California on public land as a duck hunter? Yep. I've hunted refuges in California once. So I know other people have never hunted anything other than a refuge in California. So, yeah, there's lots of things, lots of places to go. But it still could be in trouble. Yeah, I think so. Well, if we got to have watchdogs. You know, we have some good groups in California 
working on wetlands for a variety of reasons. Yeah, great organizations. Like what? California Waterfowl Association, um, DU, River Partners, Audubon's involved with a lot. I mean, even the Rice Growing Association's pretty good at enveloping the wildlife needs. So CWA, are they, are they going to agree with you that farming and clean farming is the main reason why mallard production is down? I'm agreeing with them. Oh, you're agreeing with them? Yeah, that's, they're the ones driving that message. Really? Yep. So are they working to try to... Yeah, oh, I'd say that's their number one priority right now, that and pintail limits and, you know, firearm and ammunition regulations. CWA is front and center. It keeps going on and on with what they're fighting. There's always something new. They're pretty strong in California to do what they're doing. I've been saying that for the I'd last say CWA is the third biggest waterfowl organization in North America. Behind yeah. DU and Delta? Yep. Which is pretty impressive. A single state? Yep. Well, what other national ones are there? We've got Nevada, Minnesota. I'd say half the states have some type of waterfowl organization, probably over half. It's just it's hard to keep them going, you know, especially when you have such successful national programs. It's hard to create a smaller niche unless you got some really, you know, aggressive folks leading the charge. Let me ask you this question. Is it a benefit of every duck hunter in the country that calls themselves a duck hunter, buys a duck stamp, tries to hunt ducks, harvest ducks, to become a member of an organization like CWA, even though they don't live in California? CWA is fighting for things that are going to spread east. Is it is it benefit the rest of the country of the studies and the fight, the, the good fight that CWA is putting up all the way out on the West Coast? 35 bucks a year does it make sense for a duck hunter in missouri to become a member to help fight those fights yes and no i mean those local organizations are harder that's where groups like delta and du are so big because they're national um i think that'd be really hard but i'd be willing you know i've seen nevada waterfowl associations list before and i'd say it's five percent five to ten percent out of state membership i'd have to guess cwa is probably that it's just their overall numbers, 30 times bigger than Nevada's. Right. I'm just wondering if, you, if you're sitting here telling me that they're fighting a good fight and all of these different things, all of that stuff doesn't just pertain to California. Nope. It's going to pertain to the rest of the country. Yep. So why would you... But look you at how many things... I mean, California is known as leading the charge on anything. You know, if they could get some wetland policy changes or other policy changes in California change, things will probably roll that way throughout other parts of the country. So then why shouldn't we support them across the country for 35 bucks a year? No, yeah, go it for helped, it. it. I think it's, it's just hard. I mean, you know, a lot of parts of the country look at California with a leery eye, you know. They might not want to be part of anything that has to do with California. I grew up in places like that. I get that, but if you look at it to what that organization is doing to defeat that train of thought yeah. and that psyche, that's hard what for, it's all I, about. I think it's hard for that. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to guess someone at CWA has tried looking beyond their borders and you know probably have some pretty good answers. Yeah, I don't know. So what's what's next on your radar as far as 2019 goes? I know your daughter just had a successful turkey hunt. I know you're carving decoys like crazy, but as far as your job and your profession, 
are you going to be banding thousands of birds in 2019? Are you going to the Arctic? Are you going to the Aleutian Islands? Where, where, what do you got coming up here over the next six months? Yeah, yes to everything on that except going to the Aleutians. Yeah, there's no banding going on out there. It's too expensive to work. But maybe something out at tip of the peninsula, that'd be pretty cool. But yeah, we'll be, we're banding already here. Um, hatch is starting well underway, so all our nesting studies are getting rolling putting out transmitters, getting out some bands. And then we kind of take a break in June and July. That's when you go do the family trips, go on fishing trips. That's when everybody's hatching and getting bigger. And then once July and August comes, September, yeah, that's when the big banding efforts come, when everybody's big enough to hold bands. So you will be going to the Arctic, though? Planning on it. And is that is that going to be a bunch of biologists getting together and, and shooting nets? No, it'll be a lot of aircraft and rounding up flightless geese. Flightless geese. And that's going to take place in June and July then? When July and August. July and August. Yep, late July, early August is when our geese are flightless. Early August. So they start to be able to fly again in mid-August. Yep, and you'll find the first white geese. I've seen white geese in... Western Saskatchewan and third week of August before. So where, what happens after they get August, they start flying around up there. September comes, it starts to get, their senses start to go, whoa, we got a roll. Oh yeah. No, they're already well into a roll by then. And yeah, by early October, everybody's in the prairies for those mid-continent birds. Yep, and then they'll sit there for five to six weeks, maybe longer, maybe less, depending on their species. You know, white fronts bugger out of the prairies faster than anything. And when you say prairies, you're talking about Canada. Mm-hmm. Yep, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. So historically, on paper, ducks and geese spend an average of five weeks, a month and one week in those in those areas where they're getting hunted by, and that's usually the mid-September. Yeah, ducks, ducks longer because they're nesting there. You know, they're nesting in the prairie puddles. They might spend six months of their life in Prairie Canada, you know, because they're arriving two weeks ago because it's so warm up there. And, you know, a mallard nesting near Regina probably arrived three weeks ago, and he might stay there till Thanksgiving, depending on weather. So what's the latest you've ever hunted them up there? Have you ever stayed into, Can- in- into November in Canada? No. No, I've had years whereby, you know, I've been going up there since the mid-90s. I've had years where Saskatoon area was locked up by the second week of October, like done. So, yeah, I still have that stuck in my head. That's too much of a risk to stay longer. Plus, you know, I like the variety, the cranes, the canvasbacks, they're calendar birds. They're, they're gone by that second week of October, the big numbers. You know, all that's left are mallards and honkers. Some snows. That's where I go. Yep. <laughs> yep. I don't know why you don't like mallards. Mallards. I don't get it. I just don't understand. I had it written down here. Why are why are you a duck hunter? You know, like, why are we duck hunters? Why are we so eaten up with ducks when we've had that discussion before? It's difficult. It's hard. It's expensive. It's this. It's that. Well, I get it. I know why I am. But... Isn't it, isn't it, do you ever stop to think about like, why would somebody get into something that 
literally takes over their life in a way to where like quilting yes like, like my mom yeah. that I just visited two weeks ago <laughs> yeah yeah like, or a guy that's into classic cars yeah i don't friggin get it yeah right it's but like, yeah hold the mirror up yeah yeah and then freaks. you look at yourself and you're just like i'm an idiot look at what i do to my body to myself my mind my my deal income. and it's income yeah relationships every single thing it can be de you know detrimented by but do you want to be the average joe who wants no one wants to be the average joe but why do you take it so far nikolai why are you so freaking weird about ducks why do you every single thing that you do in your life that i know about and i know that you have other shit going on but it seems You're to me like right. everything that you do has to do with waterfowl like you're so eaten up with it it's almost like you can never get away from it not that you want to no but what what does that freaking duck do or that that cackler do to us that makes us lose our freaking yeah. mind no i don't know i mean i i love watching them that's one thing that's so cool living here is we can see a duck or goose 365 days a year living here you know you couldn't do that in saskatoon um you know so it, it is weird um you know, but we're all different too. It's like, why are we here on this earth? You know, is it just to make money? Is it to have 500 kids? Is it to save the earth for the next generation? I don't know. You know, you don't learn that till the day you die kind of thing, you know? Yeah. All of us are different and do different things. Somehow we got bit. I go fishing. You do? I'll go camping if you, I go hunting or fishing. If there's ducks on the water to look at when you're fishing? Oh, yeah, that makes the day better. It makes the day way better Big here. Time. Yep. I don't know. I, I just keep I just keep getting reactions from people when they when they come around and see how eaten up we are with something to where I guess I, I guess I just haven't touched on golf enough or even baseball. Like you I, got your bat sitting right there. I man. love baseball. But man, it just there's just something about ducks that and geese that just I don't know if it's the whole the whole psyche of that time of year. Like I just started thinking when you were talking. Like I started thinking about man when that when it's when they're starting to think of leaving up there in you know August September when they're getting their flight feathers back. We're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're getting our flight feathers to go north. We're like decoys and calling and dogs and man, trucks and boats and, and 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 we're going north and they're coming there to the prairies to the the prairies that you're talking about. It's just, it's almost like you can't live without that. And it's right now it's April and I'm thinking about, it and I'm literally like, I can't express over this microphone with these headphones on what my body feels right now. Like knowing of being in that truck on that dirt road with that dust in my rear view and the sun going down and ducks pitching into a pothole or a pea field in Canada and knowing that I'm going back to the house or the hotel, to the grill, to the meat, to the, to the, to the highball, to the, the whole, to, and then waking up the next morning and the preparation and the, and the vision and being a visionary and painting that picture and throwing all the paints at your blank canvas and hoping that that hunt turns out and mother nature cooperates and it doesn't cloud out and give a low ceiling and you get some sunshine and some wind and some brisk temperatures and they come on and they cooperate which they rarely do but when they do it makes it all worth it and, and i've just, been sleeping with my windows open in my house it's awesome you know it's just that time of year yeah and you just you just you just you you feel it in your mind like you start to change now and it just gets you know over the summer and even when you're on the boat and i'm and i'm listening to music and having a michelob ultra and trying to get a tan i'm sitting there going man i just i just can't wait i just can't and it's almost like are we 
are we shortening our life because the rest of the year is so dedicated to those three months, those 107 days or those 60 days in the South or whatever. It's almost like, do you go through the motions the rest? Of, I know that we don't, but my mind's telling me like, none of this matters. My daughter is everything, but none of this other shit matters because all I want to do is be on that back road scouting and knowing that I'm a duck hunter. And I don't know. It's just, I'm not trying to get all corny with it, but it's just like a weird feeling that I'm sure old Chad, (laughs) you're having these big grandiose thoughts. Well, I don't know if I'm getting old, (laughs) which I am 44. So I guess I'm, I'm not quite middle-aged yet. I'm not even going to call myself that yet, Chris. So don't, neither are you, but I don't know. It's just like that. And I, that feeling I've had it for the last five years. So I had it when I was 35, 36, 37, whatever. I know 44 minus five isn't 35. So please don't write in and say, I suck at math, which I do. But I don't know. I just think that that feeling is all what life is of, like you said, they rule our world. And I, I think they do. And I, it, it, I don't know if deer do that. Maybe mule deer do that to mule deer. I'm sure just, they do. Just think of a person that lives in New York city that eats every meal at a restaurant and takes a taxi never farther than five miles from their million dollar apartment. Yeah. We live very different lives than they do. Yeah. And they probably think we're freaks. There's no way. I won't even go. I've never been to New York City. I've seen it from the highway 15 miles away when I was driving from a Brant hunt to a sea duck hunt. And I steered as far around it as I could because I'm terrified of it. Yeah. I would be too. It's just a cool feeling, man. I I think that everything that goes into duck hunting, then you add on all these extra layers that you know about. Like today, so far today... I was going through all my boxes of bands, figuring out how many green wing teal bands I have, how many cinnamon teal bands I have, spoonies slash pintail bands, mallard bands, you know, just getting ready because that time's coming up for me. So let's talk about that next time. Let's do another one of these. I would like to come out in May with the film crew and, 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 and film a banding initiative whether, you know, we'll talk off, off, off mic on which one or what timing of the year it is, and then come back and, and, and talk about what I saw and what I learned and what you did and where those ducks are going to go and where you've had harvest, you know, band. Yeah, come band. out like we got nest boxes going right now. We could maybe pull a hen out. Like my tech, right when I pulled up, she checked on a nest that a volunteer found for us two weeks ago. Wood ducks normally lay 13 eggs. She was all confused because this one had 26 and she pulled the hen out and it was banned in like 2010 you know so we could show you that hen we could pull up all her records show you how many times she nested last year the year before you know there's all kinds of that neat stuff it's a lot different than just that banded duck laying there on your ammo bag in the blind you know way different yeah i'm gonna do it so i'll talk figure out the, the days and the, get the crews out there because to me every every time i open my eyes i'm I, actually you need to come out sooner than that I, we just put a new seat in our six person blind yesterday we got ducks eating from here to your exterior door that yesterday i was sitting in there i caught birds last night this is with my silent net no one i'm the only person in the country that has a silent rocket net and i set i shot it grabbed the birds, reset it. I was back in the blind in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, more birds were coming in. And these things are right there. Are they all wood ducks? Yeah, these are all wood ducks. And this is the time of year where the pairs don't want to stand by each other. So there's all this fighting and nipping and they're chasing each other around, you know, stay away from me. I want to come. I want to come see this. You got to come soon because it's not going to last much longer. How how soon? Next week? 
Yeah, I mean, the next month for sure, because it'll die. Like I said, right. the middle of well, summer is when duck work stops. Let's talk about that and then get back on another podcast about what you're doing with these wood duck reports and where you're at and if anything else takes place between now and then. And then I also want to talk about, you know, anything that's kind of, that, that you've learned between now and, and that time of the year when these, you know, hunting season is just right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you don't want to talk about the pintail deal in the Pacific Flyway, even though it's really weird that, of what's going on in there. I, I, maybe one day we can also talk a little bit more about what CWA is doing and how you've worked with CWA. Cause to me, I think that that organization's kicking ass daily. Yep. And I think it's important for people to understand what they're doing, even though they're not national, a lot of things they do, you know, affects now, you know, as it moves eastward into other States. So yeah, like I said, they're the third biggest, the third biggest waterfall organization I'm aware of. Yeah. Behind DU and Delta at CWA. Yeah, and they're powerful. They've got a lot yep. of things going they got on. Awesome people working for them. Awesome people. So we'll end it at that. We both support for Chris Nikolai. I'm Chad Belding. Don't forget to join the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships, NAWTC.com, NAWTC Champ on Instagram and Facebook. Get signed up for that $300 entry fee that gets you a package valued well over that already with that Tumblr by Gator that Tacticam, all the accessories for your bows, including peep sights and broadheads and everything you archery fanatics need. 14 regions across America and Canada. $300 gets you get you a chance to win and qualify to win $50,000 cash money. Check them out on their website. Learn what it's all about. Support them. It's Wicked Outfitters. Clint and Steve, everybody in Kansas, they're going to do a great job with this. We're behind it. Tell them Chad and the Banded Foul Life crew sent you. NAWC.com, 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. Today's episode was also brought to you by Mojo Outdoors and all the fine products that Terry Demon and all the guys down there in Monroe, Louisiana are making to make us better duck hunters and to let us have better memories, whether you agree with them or not. Um, it's one of those things that, hey, it, there's data that shows that duck numbers are at an all-time high so i don't know if spinning wings are really affecting the harvest they do make it enjoyable and they've uh, painted a lot of memories in my mind seeing ducks react to a mojo so check them out at mojooutdoors.com terry demon thank you for all the support and today's episode is also brought to you by our friends at mo tv check them out at mo tv motv.com for all of your favorite producers on the outdoor channel the world fishing network the sportsman's channel content up the rear you can get whatever you want on there, whether it's Waddell, Lee and Tiffany, Jim Shockey, Eva Shockey, Pat and Nicole, it doesn't matter. All of our stuff's on there for for uh, the foul life from season one all the way up to season 10. Again, it's Mo TV and uh, get your content that way. Become a subscriber today. They're going to give you huge benefits and discounts when you subscribe, and it's very affordable on a monthly charge for you to be able to have all of that outdoor hunting and fishing conservation content at your fingertips. I'm Chad Belding. Thank you, Chris Nikolai, for being here. Tom Rashashin, please hit that button on Leith Loft and what you're going to do when the money's all gone. Thank you. Say life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone?